0: For much of the Middle Ages, there was a really interesting tradition in the papal household. Uh, a single monk, known for kind of really known for his humility and his humble disposition, would be chosen to kind of stand silently in the presence of the Pope for an entire year. Uh, he would be with him in every everything that he did. All of his activities, his meetings, his audiences, even if it's times of prayer, every time he celebrated Mass. Except, Aside from he wasn't with him in the confessional, that's the only time he wasn't with him. And at the conclusion of that year, after st- standing in silence for the whole year, this, the monk would step forward as the Pope sits in his chair. He would kind of prostrate himself before the Holy Father as an act of reverence. And then he would stand and reprimand the Pope for every sin he committed throughout that entire year. Just, just give it to him, you know, give him everything. And uh, for any acts of injustice, for any indifference to the poor, for any abuses of his papal power uh, that he had committed throughout that entire year. And then the Pope just had to sit there in silence, no rebuttal, he just had to take it. And, uh, and then at the end, when the monk finished, he would kind of prostrate himself before the Pope again and go back to whatever monastery he was from. And then a new monk would come in for the following year. And... Uh, And I think this is an absolutely fascinating tradition because it created a kind of a way for even, in a sense, the most unapproachable and unincorrectable person in the world to be corrected, for him to receive a dose of humility, in that sense, uh, because he's faced with an office that is so conducive to pride. And and if we think about it, it would be so, it would be impossible to correct the pope to his face on what he has done wrong. So they, they kind of created a way to do that. But even, even given that, that office that that monk had, you can kind of imagine the tension in the air when this monk just begins to list off all the, all the practices of that pope uh, throughout that entire year. Because the fact is that none of, us, none of us enjoy correcting those we love. None of us enjoy rebuking our loved ones. I think we sometimes enjoy too much uh, correcting those who we disagree with or those who we don't like. Uh, that's often a, that's the easiest thing to do. But when it comes to our loved ones, those are, the, those are the ones that are difficult to correct. But being corrected and correcting others is a crucial part of the Christian life. So I think we look to the readings today for kind of guidance in such a touchy topic uh, because I think they give us a few really important distinctions and kind of give us a guide on how to go about this. But before even doing that, I think we need to look at why this is relevant um, because well, because it's, it's very difficult to correct others in our culture today. And I'll point out just a little bit as to why that is. I think our culture is kind of obsessed with it, human dignity and human rights, which I think is a great thing. You know in general uh, it's very it's good that we emphasize dignity and human rights in our culture. I think a misapplication of these two kind of concepts can lead to problems I think in particular in our culture, we think that that when someone has dignity and rights, that means that that they're kind of unapproachable by any sort of critique that each of us is kind of an island unto ourselves where No one else is allowed to kind of come in and tell us how to live. But I think all of us can realize pretty quickly that this is an impossible and contradictory idea of of life because as Christians, we are responsible for our brothers and sisters. We live in a community. We're in solidarity with one another, and therefore, we're responsible for one another. So we can't go around making up our own kind of moral code or living life just however we want it or else all of that would crumble very quickly. So then if, 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 our, if that doesn't mean, if, if having dignity and rights doesn't mean that we're exempt from any sort of correction from the outside, then what is our responsibility to one another? What does that look like? I think this is where the scriptures are helpful. There's kind of two important passages that I think we should look at. The first is from the prophet Ezekiel who tells us, if you don't speak to dissuade the wicked from his way, I will hold you responsible for his death. That's a really kind of fascinating and scary prospect that we can somehow be held responsible for someone else's sins, for someone else's wrongdoings. How is that, how is that possible? Uh, I think if we look closely, we realize it's not universal. That'd be ridiculous. For me to be held responsible for someone across the world's sin uh, is, is just unrealistic. But Ezekiel in this passage the Lord tells him, you're the watchman over Israel. You have authority over Israel, therefore you're responsible for Israel. Anything you don't speak to, you're responsible for. So the first thing we ask ourselves is, who are we responsible for? And that's a question you can kind of look, you can kind of look around your life, examine your life. Who do you have authority over? Because those are the ones for whom you'll be held responsible. I think the most obvious is parents. You're responsible for your children. I had a professor in seminary once tell me, in a very serious tone, he said, Kirby, you're my student. If your soul perishes at the end of your life, then I may in some distant way be held responsible for that. But if one of my children's souls perishes, I tremble to think of what will happen to me. I think think everyone kind of accepts this parental authority. We all know that in some way that the salvation of a family is wrapped up together. But what of teachers? What of your students? What responsibility do you have for your students? Coaches, what responsibility do you have for your players? Me as a priest, I'm held responsible for my parish. And for me in particular, I guess, Butte Central. Um, Our extended family and our neighbors. Extended family probably means that in Butte, you're all responsible for everyone in Butte because everybody's related. At least that's that's how it seems from my experience so far. but, but that, that, seems, that seems to make things a little murky. Just because you're related to everyone in Butte doesn't mean you're responsible for everyone in Butte. So, uh, so that's some discernment that you obviously have to make there. And I think uh, that's something we need to ask ourselves. So it's also not clear the next question it's also not clear when we actually have the right to correct someone. When do you have the right to correct someone? And so. I think none of us has that office of that 12th century monk, so we can't just at the end of each year go to each person we know and list off all the sins we saw them commit over the past year. That seems a little out of hand. So Jesus tells his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Like the first, the first key word there is actually the word sin. Jesus doesn't tell us if your brother or sister offends you, Go to them alone. If your brother or sister disagrees with you, go to them. But he says very explicitly, sin. So we need to ask ourselves: has this person actually committed some some wrongdoing against us? Or have they just kind of injured my pride or my self-esteem? Because if that's the case, you have no right to speak to them. Next, Jesus tells us to correct the fault of this person in person and alone. So this tells us a few very important things that, first, we have to be absolutely sure, strive with every fiber of our being to correct those we love with respect and with absolute humility. Humility is the key. If there's any sense of self-interest involved in me correcting another, if there's any desire to gain something from this, then silence is the principle. Stay silent. Further, uh, the second reading tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So love ought to be the guide in all correction or critique of those we love. We do it because we love the person. There's There's really no adequate reason to correct or rebuke another person for a wrongdoing, except in hope of them coming to know Christ in a deeper way. That must always be the goal. I remember in high school, when I was kind of at the height of my worldliness, one of my really good friends uh, just sat me down and very calmly told me that my life was a total wreck and I needed to get my crap together or I was gonna destroy myself. And so uh, I could see visibly the pain that it caused him to tell me that, but I still received it really poorly and hated him for a long time. But I will never forget it and I can never thank him enough uh, for, for the courage that it took to do that and the impact that it had on me in the end. Uh, it was an act of charity. And I think this is admittedly a very difficult topic for a lot of us because it kind of hits close to home. It's, it's a little gritty, and it doesn't actually seem, it's not as abstract as a lot of the more beautiful parts of Christianity. Um, so, because many of us, including myself, I think we're, we're quick to correct those around us when they do something like offend us or when they disagree with us. But it, we never, it's so difficult to get, build up the courage to correct something, someone on something that actually matters, that's actually life changing. Uh, so, so we strive in all humility to do this. And I think part of, part of the reason that it's difficult for us to do this is because we're so bad at receiving correction uh, that we know everybody else is gonna be bad at it too. We're, we're prideful, so we don't like to be corrected. So I think the first key in all of this would be to receive correction well to strive whenever someone else whenever someone else brings up one of your wrongdoings, even if they do it in a self-interested way and that's obvious, receive it graciously because just because they're doing it for the wrong reasons doesn't mean it's wrong uh, could still be a true thing that they've said uh, and that that doesn't mean we let ourselves be bullied because you just should ignore all of that garbage but but it's easy, if we think it through, to d- tell the difference between a good correction and being bullied. So rebuking our brother and sister is, is awkward, and it's treacherous, and it always comes with a risk. And I, th- I do think in most cases, uh, silence is the best principle. We always err on the part of silence. But we must remember that we are a community. We do live in solidarity with one another. And so, to one degree or another, we are all responsible for each other's salvation. That's what a community of faith is. So therefore, we have to discern it carefully. uh, Strive for humility. Whenever you correct someone, correct them as though you're correcting the Holy Father himself. as As though you're a 12th century monk correcting the Holy Father himself. So, above all, Uh, We remember that love must always be the guide. Uh, Charity must always be the guide because love is the fulfillment of the law.